How do you write a script that so sharply satirizes your nation's traditions and institutions, its class system and religion, its chauvinism and colonialism, that the only way it can end is in violent revolution? Here is David Sherwin, who was all of 20 years old when he dreamt up the origins of the momentous British film, If. The reason I wrote the script was that I wanted to actually go to Hollywood and write a Western, but all plots had been done. And suddenly it occurred to me, something I had learned at school, um, the words of William Wordsworth, that poetry is experience recollected in tranquility. And the only experience I had was my school, which was a sort of Nazi war camp. And I sat down to write a script which was called Crusaders, which was eventually saw some six years later. If was released in 1968, that calamitous year which saw all manner of wars, revolts, protests, marches, cultural shifts and violent responses from authorities right across the globe. It began on January the 30th in Vietnam with a Tet Offensive. Then came the assassinations of Dr Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, between which there was the first civil rights march in Northern Ireland, followed by the student riots on the streets of Paris, more riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago, the Prague Spring which was crushed by the Soviet invasion, the massacre of 400 students and citizens by the military in Mexico City, the banning of the Liberal Party in South Africa, and in Britain, where Conservative MP Enoch Powell delivered his Rivers of Blood speech. Change was so visceral and often so violent, even if you weren't out there in the streets to witness it, you could hear it on the radio. Set in a British public boarding school, IF explores and explodes its hierarchical structures. But it's not the way the staff and teachers impose order on the students. That observation will be far too banal. Like Sherwin, the film's director Lindsay Anderson was also a graduate of the public school system. So his intention was to examine the hierarchy within the student body itself. Again, it would be too obvious and easy to lament how the seniors order about the juniors. Instead, Anderson focuses on the seniors themselves, where the prefects, or whips, are granted extra authority, which in turn creates the space for a tyranny. Yes, we have seen many such school films doing the same thing, but IF is the one that set the template, and what keeps it vital today is the way it shows the student body as a self-governing beast which has absorbed, as if by osmosis, the diktats of the masters. In that way, the masters are never seen as malevolent, and their power is retained by having the subjects fight and scrap amongst themselves. And rebelling against it all is lower sixth former Mick Travis, played by Malcolm McDowell in a screen debut. Mick Travis was absolutely everything I was and absolutely nothing. There was a huge amount of me in that part because the first, your first film role, you know, uh, in such a film like that um, is the purest performance that you'll ever give in your life. It's, you know, it's not tainted by technique because I didn't have any technique. It was just me 
reacting to it, doing it, you know. Remembering his Wordsworth, Sherwin had initially fashioned a story heavily influenced by his memories of attending the Eton Group School in Tunbridge, Kent. Sherwin titled his tome Crusaders, but as soon as the script landed on Anderson's desk, Sherwin was cajoled, chided and guided to constantly write, rewrite and rewrite it so much that not only was its shape, content and tone utterly changed, the title had to be altered also. The problem was no one could come up with a suitable name. Crusaders bore too heavy, if ironic, a religious connotation, and the proposed substitute, Come the Revolution, sounded not only too earnest, but too literal. In the end, it was the film's production secretary, Daphne Hunter, who suggested If. Why? Because If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. Anderson agreed with production secretary Daphne Hunter's suggestion, not only because it played with Kipling's poem, but because the word itself is so ambiguous as to be inconclusive. In other words, Anderson, who had been born in Bangalore, India, was not inciting revolution, but hypothesising it. Well, what is the film about? It's about authority. <clears throat> I think it's about authority and uh, the subjects of authority. But it's also uh, an allegory in many ways, one that can be understood and liked in countries outside Britain. In fact, I think it's always been more successful abroad than it has been in this country. And uh, in that respect, uh, if you like, an audience in Poland or America will understand it uh, in terms of their own societies and their own lives. Anderson is, without question, one of the most important figures in the history of British cinema. He began his career as a critic, writing with the independent publication Sequence, and then later the British Film Institute journal Sight and Sound, where in 1956 he penned the article Stand Up, Stand Up, in which he rounded on fellow critics for what they considered to be objectivity, but which Anderson correctly recognised as a class-bound reserve that wanted no more than things to remain the same. Anderson was railing against a stagnation in British filmmaking, and not content to stand on the sidelines critiquing, he stepped behind the camera and, along with Gavin Lambert and Carol Rice, in that same year, set up Free Cinema, an idea that was initially intended only to be a once-off screening of just three short films at the National Film Theatre. But the event proved so powerful it now serves as one of these seminal moments in the history of European film. Anderson titled the screening programme Free Cinema because he said the collection of films should be made free from the pressure of the box office and the demands of propaganda. And it was that determination for individual vision that was the root of Anderson's career. His cinema would forever be personally committed and that commitment was recognised when he was awarded an Oscar for his documentary, Thursday's Children. He made his feature film debut in 1963 with This Sporting Life, starring Richard Harris as tough and bitter Frank Macken, whose only success is achieved in the brutal arena of the rugby league playing field, where his physical commitment is ruthlessly exploited by the managers of the game. You needn't take it seriously. Why not? It's only a game, old sport's all a game. 
For Weaver's benefit. You mean the act like that, just for Weaver? Well, it's his cash they're dishing out. His old Sloma's. If Sloma hates your guts, Weaver will buy you out of spite. I see you got a bruise coming. No Weaver wouldn't have you up here just to say tata, are you, man? It is hard to underestimate the controversy that surrounded the release of If. When it was invited to screen as the official British entry at the 1969 Cannes Film Festival, the British ambassador to France denounced it as an insult to the nation. Nonetheless, the Cannes jury awarded it the Palme d'Or. Back home in England, conservative critics continued to insist its politics were so incendiary that it bordered on fascism. Yet at the same time, progressive critics recognised it was socially relevant, metaphorically rich, and above all, deeply committed to change. Although Anderson said that style was crucial to any filmmaker, when watching If, one of the first things you notice is how neutral his camera and editing style appear to be. Compare them to what other filmmakers were doing in the 60s. Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, Jean-Luc Godard's Piago Le Fou, Ingmar Bergman's Persona, or Vera Chitilova's Daisies, and you will see a European cinema palpitating with experimentation. Yet despite the opportunity for Anderson to do something similar, he resisted the temptation and chose instead to shoot the whole thing with the same detached manner of his documentaries. Yes, there are some flourishes, such as the use of slow motion and random switches between black and white and colour, but elsewhere, Anderson committed himself to give a personal view of an extreme set of circumstances. I think I've never really been able to make anything that didn't reflect very strongly the way I feel and think about things. I mean, that's, <clears throat> if, if anything, that is the, what is distinctive about the films I've made, because the way I do think and feel about things, which is, to a great extent, critical, is not popular. Anderson openly admitted that he was drawing inspiration from another great work set in a boarding school, Jean Vigo's Zéro de Conduit, from 1933. That film boasts an extraordinary score from Maurice Chaubert. And it would be a mistake not to listen carefully to the music Anderson chose for his film. Played over the opening credits is the hymn Stand Up, Stand Up. While we see a still sepia-toned image of the school, we are listening to music that is being sung at the school. We know this because halfway through the credits, the hymn ends and we hear this. And then we hear this. The score Anderson commissioned from first-time film composer Mark Wilkinson. In short order, Anderson has taken us through the different modes of sounds we will hear in the film. The first is diegetic music. The second is non-musical sounds, natural to the scene. Dialogue, shoes on the stairs, 
the flushing of toilets during the near incessant bullying that is condoned, if not expected, by the school authorities. Then there is the scene where Travis himself is subjected to a caning from the whips. And it is there that Anderson cuts away to scenes of the other students in different parts of the school, who, although they could not possibly hear the punishment, Anderson treats the sound so it becomes extra diegetic. So we know the students are feeling the punishment themselves. All of which is to illustrate how the whips, and by extension the schoolmasters, exert their control. Finally, there is Wilkinson's highly experimental atonal compositions that succeed in distancing us from the action while simultaneously making that action more compelling and thus drawing us in to consider it more closely. And then there is the other hymn that is heard in the film. This time, not sung by the school choir, but instead, via a record smuggled into the dormitory by Mick Travis and played on his gramophone. This is Sanctus from the Latin Mass sung in styles traditional to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mick plays it over and over in dorms, and then later, when he and his friend steal a motorbike and drop into a roadside cafe, it is inexplicably on the jukebox playlist. Anderson could have chosen any piece of music to represent Mick's much sought after freedom. But in choosing this piece, Anderson is acknowledging and satirising British traditions and institutions, its class system and religion, its chauvinism and colonialism, and how all can be appropriated as a form of much-needed protest and rebellion. If did not incite revolution, it wasn't designed to, but back in 1968 when it was first released, it was an exciting, vibrant, vital film, and almost half a century later it has lost little of its power. <laughs> 